Let me invite you back to John chapter 8 with me this morning. John 8. Begin by sharing a story with you that uh, some of you have heard before. Uh, some of you may remember back too, uh, but it's probably been, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago. I uh, was serving as youth pastor here at church, and Melinda and I, uh, pre-kids, lived over in the White Parsonage, kind of in the middle of the parking lot there, and uh, it's good to live close to church, very good, uh, but it also has some downside, and uh, there was a particular Wednesday night where I'm like, oh, I forgot something, and uh, the irony of it is, as I tell you the story, I don't even remember what it was that I forgot. But I know that it was in the bedroom, and so I was in a hurry. I went running home on that Wednesday night. It's like 10 to 7. I got to get to youth group. I go running in the house, and in my youth and the foolishness of my youth, I uh, didn't turn the lights on in the house, uh, walked in the front door, turned left, took a couple steps across the kitchen, turned right up the stairs, turned right again up the next couple stairs, down to the first bedroom on the left, run in there, grab what I needed, Go to run out, not realizing that whether it was the heat in the room, which is right by the door, or the hinges of the door, or whatever it might be, that door had blown about halfway shut. And because I was moving at full speed, reckless youth, I led with my head, and I caught that door dead center of my forehead. I think that really was the first part of my body that made contact with the door, and uh, it split my head right there. And I am out the door on my way over to youth group, and I begin to realize not only does my head hurt, but it's wet. And I've got blood coming down my forehead, and I've got youth group in like five minutes at this point, uh, which is a little embarrassing, you know. As I think back through that now, you know, there are all kinds of ways I could have solved that problem, right? I mean, think about it. I could memorize and walk through, once you go through the door and you turn left, take X number of steps, then you have to go up X number of steps, and then you turn and you go up X number of steps, and then it's X number of steps to get into the room, and then it's X number of steps over to the desk that was there, right? We could just memorize and go, okay, you kind of got your uh, course plotted. Or, you know, I, I suppose they have like really fancy animals these days that can kind of guide you through places. And I could say, Melinda, I don't ever want to do that again. Let's buy a pet that can help me navigate and walk through the house so that it's completely safe. Um, I'm kind of curious if it would work today. I suppose I could turn on the GPS on my phone and have it guide me through, turn right now, turn left now. Um, I suppose there's probably some kind of really elaborate sensor systems. You know, you watch these like robots that mow your lawn or vacuum your house now, and they know, stop here, there's a wall, okay, or there's the stairs or whatever it is. I suppose I could set up some kind of really elaborate sensor system in the house so that uh, right as I go to hit that wall, it's like, nope, stop, okay? And some of you are like, this is dumb. You're right. Because there's a really simple answer, is there not? Turn on the lights. Just turn on the lights. And then turn them off. It will not take you that much more time. And you'll see where you're going. It'll be great. And yet, as we come to John 8 this morning, I want to remind you that Jesus is addressing religious people. People 
who have devoted their lives saying they are followers of God. And yet, what the text makes abundantly clear, and Lord willing, we'll at least touch parts of all of chapter 8, but it's through the entirety of the chapter, what becomes abundantly clear is, rather than going to the light, they're going to lean on themselves. They're going to lean on their wisdom. They're going to lean on their plans. They're going to lean on their ideas instead of going to the light. And I would like to remind and challenge all of us, myself included, that you can be a follower of God. You can be a saved believer of Jesus Christ, and yet at points forget who is the source of light, who it is that you need to go to for guidance in this life. Why you can't continue to walk through the house in darkness. Why you can't continue to go through life beating yourself up, hurting yourself because you're attached to darkness. In Jesus Christ, we have the light of the world. And that is his second statement here in the Gospel of John. As we come to John chapter 8 verse 12 and he says, I am the light of the world. In essence, he's saying, I am what you need. I am what you should follow. I am the one who dispels the darkness, who gives hope, who guides your path. I'm what you need. And yet, some of us are just as foolish as I was running to the house, probably more foolish, spiritually speaking, Go, no, 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 I got it. I got this figured out. Instead of saying, you know what, Christ has come, he's given light in my life. If I will but surrender to him, if I will believe him, if I will follow him, if I will obey him, it will be okay. We lean on our own understanding, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 has said so well. Let me remind you briefly that we've been walking through this series saying from John 1 particularly, God communicated to us through a person, Jesus. It's a wonderful reality that God gave us revelation, particularly the full revelation through his son, Jesus Christ. God communicated to us secondly for a purpose, and that purpose is belief. Ongoing faith in him, not just for salvation, not just for salvation, but all through life. In fact, I'll go ahead and use the illustration now. For whatever reason, I was studying this week. I I had this flashback to my childhood, listening to commercials on the TV. Uh, And I think this device is actually still out there because I had to Google it to make sure. But do you remember the days of the clapper? Like the good commercials, I won't try to sing the jingle for you, but it's clap on, clap off the clapper, right? And for five easy payments of or whatever it was, I don't remember. But, you know, you could buy a device that you clap your hands and the lights turn on. And you clap your hands and the lights go off. It's supposed to make life really convenient and easy. And now we just say, Alexa, turn on the lights. Okay? But I'm afraid some of us approach our Christianity like that. There's eternal condemnation for sin. All right, I'll go to the light. Lord, would you just show up and make this better for me? And it's like, but you know what? I'm really angry right now. I'm really hurt. I'm really selfish. I really just want to do. And so I'll walk in darkness. But God, as long as I can clap and you'll come back, we're good. 
That's not belief. He doesn't operate on our terms. As we saw even last week with Jesus as the bread of life, it's really clear the religious leader is like, just give us one more sign. Give us another one. He's like, you don't need more sign. You need to believe. And here all through John 8, you're going to watch the religious leaders again miss the purpose of God's communication. God communicated through a person, Jesus Christ. He communicated for a purpose, belief. And then he communicates through these portraits or these pictures, these I am's. So last week, we looked at Jesus' identity as the bread. This week, we look at Jesus' identity as the light of life, the light of the world. We're going to do this by looking at the text from two perspectives. One of the parts that I've really enjoyed as we work through this series is just seeing the flow of the text. That's why we read long before chapter 8, verse 12 this morning, because again, you see they're grappling, who's this guy? In John 7, oh, he's a prophet. Well, I think he's the Christ. Someone's like, no, that can't be true. It doesn't come from Galilee. Nothing good comes from Galilee. You're wrong. Does any other Pharisee believe this? Like, come on, you guys are all dumb. We have this figured out. The Pharisees, no one's believing this. And Nicodemus is like, wait a second, maybe we should hear him out. Because Nicodemus, while fearful, has faith. He has belief. With two perspectives we're going to look at. First, begin with this illustration in verses 1 through 11, and then it begins with the actual teaching in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. I would note that both in the illustration of what takes place as well as the interaction or the teaching later, both involve the Pharisees, both involve an indictment of their thinking and their behavior, which again is a wonderful reason for all of us to be on guard Sin is so deceptive. In fact, near the end of our time together, we're going to fast forward to the end of John chapter 8, and Jesus indicts them because they're following the one who is the ultimate deceiver. We don't want to be there. Where we are deceived thinking it's all good, and it's not. Because they think they're right. They're following God. They're in the temple, the place where it's like we worship God here. Like, they're in church Sunday, we could say. And yet they're wrong. Let's begin as we look at verses 1 through 11 with the illustrative content, contrast, rather, the illustrative contrast. Here's the lesson being illustrated of Jesus as the light of the world. In verses 1 and 2, you'll notice with me the setting. As we look at the setting, it follows the Feast of Tabernacles, or what we might call the Feast of Booths. Uh, I don't have time to dive into all of that, but it's fascinating because both water and light play an integral role in that feast. And in John 7, Jesus has talked about himself as the water of life. And now in John 8, he's going to talk about himself as the light. We're coming out of that feast celebration when Jesus begins to speak to them. He's been to the Mount of Olives. He's up early the next morning. He comes to the temple, and lo and behold, the crowds are still there. We saw that in John 6. It's showing up now in John 8. And he begins to teach the crowds once more. It's against that backdrop of the setting that the religious leaders are once again going to try to trap Jesus with his words. If you were with us when we studied our way through the Gospel of Mark, you'll remember they do this over and over and over again. Here in John 8, once again, they're going to try to trap him. And so we move from the setting to their scheme in verses 3 through the beginning of verse 6. 
they bring this woman into the midst who is known to be an adulteress, and they're going to raise a question for him as to what should happen to this woman because of her sin, because of what Moses' law says. Just notice with me for a moment, the issue was not a question of guilt. It was not a question of guilt. Her guilt was evident. Her actions were an embarrassment, and grace was not present. All of those things are very true. The issue was not a question of guilt. Rather, the issue was an application of the law. What do we do since we know she is guilty? The trial's already been had. The sentence just needs to be meted out. From their standpoint, it would appear by raising this application of the law, Jesus is trapped. If Jesus agrees with the law, then this woman has to die. She has to be stoned. And yet, who has Jesus been a friend of? Who has Jesus been going to and visiting with that the Pharisees have repeatedly held up against him? This man eats with publicans and sinners. This man is with those who are unclean. It's intolerable in their mind. And so Jesus could say, well, here's what the law says, and so she must be condemned legally because she's guilty. On the other hand, if Jesus shuns the law, he loses credibility. I mean, after all, if he's going to be the prophet, that's, that's already in context in view in uh, John chapter 7, verse 40. They're saying of a truth, this is the prophet. They're referencing Deuteronomy 18. Like, this is the one that Moses would told us would come. If, if he's that guy and he disagrees with the law, then that's a problem. So their goal is to uh, trap Jesus. That's very clear in verse 6. This they said, tempting him, that they might accuse him. They want to see him violate the law of Moses. And yet, as Jesus so often wonderfully does in the gospel, he answers their question in his way, not theirs. He does not address the issue as it's been presented legally. Instead, he raises the bar by answering it spiritually. He's not going to play their game. We've seen this over and over with the Pharisees where they come and they want to present their understanding of the law, their perspective, and Jesus will not agree with their perspective. He'll raise the bar, he'll raise the standard, and he does that here. Rather than simply answering the question legally, he answers it spiritually. So having seen the setting and the scheme, let's third look at the solution here in this illustrative contrast. From verse 6 to verse 11, initially Jesus doesn't speak. He merely writes. And again, the point is not to know what he writes. Okay, Rather, I find it interesting that he, as he writes, the Pharisees are frustrated. He's not answered their question. They continue to demand his answer while he's writing. Come on, give us an answer. And so eventually he will speak and as we look at the solution, notice with me his wise indictment of sin. His wise indictment of sin, particularly at the end of verse 7. Okay? In doing this, he confronts their self-righteous hypocrisy. In other words, they're all ready to go, we know what the answer is. Let's trap Jesus. Let's move on with this. 
And yet he's got a greater concern for where each of them are at. But they're good in their mind. And so he uses this very wise indictment of sin to confront their uh, self-righteous hypocrisy. He says to them there in verse 7, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. In essence, Jesus has agreed with the law. She could be stoned. So, if there's anybody here who is completely innocent before God, you can go ahead and go first. Anybody who themselves is not already condemned by the law, you can lead the way. What a wonderfully wise answer by our Savior. In that, he doesn't violate the law, but he does indict their self-righteous hypocrisy. He sees their trap coming. He understands what their goal is. And yet, having said that, he begins again to write on the ground. In one simple statement, Jesus has brought both clarity and conviction to the situation. It's become really clear. And yet, it's become really convicting. Rather than allow hypocritical sinners to use the law to condemn another sinner, Jesus, in essence, exposes the beam that's in their eye. So we read in verse 9, they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Having considered Jesus' wise indictment of sin, let's look secondly at his merciful offer of grace. His merciful offer of grace. In in his wise indictment of sin, he confronted their self-righteous hypocrisy, but in his his merciful offer of grace, don't miss, he commands her to live as holy. He commands her to live as holy. In the midst of this pretty serious situation, again, you'd have to picture that in your mind's eye with me for a moment. This woman has been drugged into the temple She is being told, here's what the law says. The question's been raised as to what the law says. It would seem that it is highly likely that death is imminent for this woman. Judgment will be carried out. In that backdrop, as these people have now left, I wonder what's going through her mind. And yet, Jesus asks what is almost a humorous question. Jesus lifted up himself, verse 10, saw none but the woman. Like, Let me look up now. Um, woman, where are your accusers? Where did everybody go? Has, hasn't anybody condemned you? Because she does deserve condemnation. He hasn't minimized that. Woman, where are they? Now, again, we understand Jesus doesn't need an answer. He knows. He's God, incarnate, in the flesh. But he asks her this question. Death had been the probable possibility, but deliverance did become her personal reality. She's going to be forgiven and freed. She says to him, no man, Lord, Having confronted the self-righteous hypocrisy, Jesus now does command this woman to live as holy. She's addressed him as Lord. She recognizes his authority in very simple words. 
And so Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus does something here that would have been wrong for the religious leaders to do. If they had let her off the hook, it would be unjust, would seem unfair, would not seem right. And yet, as God, in his perfection, for God to release her of her wrong is absolutely right. It's okay, because very shortly, Jesus will have paid it all for her and for you and me. He can say, you know what, I'll release you. I'm not going to condemn you. Rather, I'll forgive you and release you of the wrongs. And on top of that, I'm going to give you a new purpose for which to live. So I'm not going to condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Again, in his innocence, we could say, well, he could certainly condemn her for her sin. God has that right to serve as judge. And yet, he does delight in showing mercy. She's recognized him as Lord here, so he releases her from that wrong and commands her to live rightly. What a poignant illustration to lead into his instruction. That's why I've called it an illustrative contrast. To say, here's this woman that everybody would think, well, yeah, she sinned. Here's what the law says. And here's the religious leaders. And yet he tells her, go live as holy. He tells them, here's your hypocrisy. And now it's in that backdrop that he's going to say, I am the light of the world. Again, it would be very easy for the self-righteous mindset exemplified by the Pharisees to go, well, yeah, we want to walk in the light. We do all kinds of stuff to walk in the light. We count the number of steps that we take on the Sabbath so we can make sure that we're walking in the light and we're living as holy. And yet in context, is it pretty clear they're not walking in the light? It is. It's like trying to go into the house and go, you know, if I count the number of steps that I take and turn and count the number of steps, then maybe it'll be okay. You better just turn on the light. As we continue on, we've seen the illustrative contrast in the lesson demonstrated. Let's look at this instructive confrontation or the lesson communicated. We begin with the reality stated, I am the light of the world there in verse 12. Jesus uh, Then spake Jesus again unto them saying, I am the light of the world. Again, keep in mind how necessary light is for life to help things grow, to give guidance, to dispel the darkness, to help us have perspective, to illumine the right path, to provide hope. I mean, even back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, they're told that the the people who've walked in darkness are going to see this great light. And Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy that Isaiah gave not just through Israel, but particularly through him himself as the Messiah. Again, verse 20 notes the location where this dialogue is taking place. We've already alluded to it. There's tremendous irony in the location because he's in a place where light should be abundantly present. He's in the temple with people who lead what takes place there. And yet, again, we won't have time to get through all of it. I encourage you, read through chapter 8 and see if you think they had true light. 
They did not. That's the tremendous irony. This should be a place of hope, of light, of life, and it's not. On the other hand, it's also a tremendous place of imagery. Because it was in the particular location. It's noted as a treasury. It's also known as the court of the woman, women. But uh, there, when they would celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, there would be these large candelabra that would be lit to illumine the area. Those are there. They're probably not lit at this point. But you know what's far bigger than that? They're, again, symbolizing what took place in the Exodus when God led his children out, particularly by a flame of fire at night. But now, Jesus, the one who is the true light, who is the light of the world, is there giving these statements biblically, theologically. We could run to other other texts and remind ourselves, like Romans chapter 1, verse 21, or Ephesians chapter 4, or Ephesians chapter 5, that apart from God, when we are in our sinfulness, we are wandering about in darkness. Okay? It hurts. Gave you an illustration along those lines. But not just physically, spiritually. If we live apart from God, if we live apart from his word, if we live apart from hope in Jesus Christ, it is incredibly destructive and devastating in our life as we wander about in darkness. That's why believing on God, we are told, or believing on Christ, we are told that we are rescued from that darkness. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 is going to say, we are translated from the kingdom, the power of darkness, into his light. We, we change locations so that we don't live in that darkness anymore. That's the point in, Hebrew, uh, in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. Don't go back and live that way. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't go back if you've truly believed on Christ. Because Jesus as the light frees sinners. Here he confronts the Pharisees. He exposes sin in our lives and others. But as the light, he also enables us to live rightly. That's what he's telling the woman here. He's provided what's needed. He's giving hope because we can see perspective is present. The reality stated is, I am the light of the world. But let's look at the response that's given or the response articulated. As Jesus begins to communicate what the response should be, once again, it is presented first as a decision of faith. Jesus can say he's the light of the world, but if you don't believe on him, you are still in darkness. It always begins with a response of faith, a belief. So later on in verse 23 is one example. He said unto them, ye are from beneath. This is the religious leaders he's speaking to. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Jesus, by the way, becomes very pointed in his talking to them here if you don't catch that. You must believe on me. I am your hope. I am the light of the world. We don't often maybe draw this connection, at least I don't often draw this connection, but he says something very similar connecting belief and light in John 3. You know verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Verse 19 then says this, and this is the condemnation. Okay, here is the condemnation. That light is come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And you're like, well, yeah, there's all kinds of people that love their sinfulness and their selfishness and all that bad stuff. Do you think the religious leaders are in view in part in John 3.19? He's just finished talking to Nicodemus at the beginning of John 3. He's going to continue to confront them in the chapters ahead. But they've loved darkness. They've loved their self-reliance. They've loved their self-righteousness. And so they continue in darkness instead of believing on the light. If we've made a decision of faith, that brings us to our second thought. It involves a departure from sin. If we've believed on Jesus, the one who is the light of the world, then it must involve a departure from sin. Jesus said it this way in uh, John 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus is saying, look, if you've chosen to be a follower of mine, if you have believed on me, you're not going to continue to live in darkness. John makes this same point abundantly clear in his epistle. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, this then is the message that we have heard of him that God, and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say, I've got a great relationship with God, I have fellowship with God, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. It's like you're playing a game, just like the Pharisees were here. That is why Jesus later on in John 8, verse 31, will say this to those who believed on him. John 8, verse 31, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Because true faith, believing faith, saving faith, does change the way that we live. I'm going to strive to live in the light, to walk in that light, to stay away from the unfruitful works of darkness, as we referenced from Ephesians 5. Again, that theme gets repeated through the New Testament. So quickly, I ask you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is your walk distinctively different than the unbelievers around you? Does it show up in your integrity? Does it show up in your family? Does it show up in your work ethic? Does it show up in your entertainment? Does it show up in your own personal purity? Does it show up in your ethics? Does it show up in your stewardship? Does it show up in your marriage? Does it show up in your family? Where it's like, you know, I am being changed because I want to walk in the light. Again, a wonderful set of texts in that regard is Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5. Because uh, in Ephesians 4, about verse 17, 18, 19, he begins to talk about Gentiles walking in darkness, having their understanding darkened. And he's like, but you've not so learned Christ. You're different. He spells out a whole bunch of ways that you're different. And then if we miss it, he comes back to it in chapter 5. And then he begins to talk about, here's your relationships at home and your relationship at work into chapter 6. Adults, children, everybody in between. Because you're different. Walk in light, not in darkness. Just as he's commanded the woman here, go your way and sin no more. Not perfect, but pursuing him. 
having pointed to himself as the light of the world, Jesus has said there's a need, there's a decision of faith that must occur. Once that decision of faith occurs, then there is a departure from sin. You're not going to live that way. You, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. But as we quickly summarize the rest of the chapter, let's note the distinction in his followers. The distinction in his followers. He's already touched on, and we already touched on in John 8, 31 and 32, the one who follows me doesn't walk in darkness. You'll, if you do this, you'll know the truth. Truth will set you free. I'm going to just summarize the rest of the chapter in two simple thoughts for you. First, what shows the Pharisees' problem, their hypocrisy, their lack of faith, is that they question the legitimacy of his teaching. They question the legitimacy, we could say, of his testimony. As it begins to continue, they once again reach for the law shelf. And it's like, but the law says if there's not two witnesses, then what you're saying isn't true. And Jesus is going to say, well, one, I've said it, but secondly, my father says it. And showing their blindness again, they're thinking, father, father, we saw this in John 6. Joseph, they can't wrap their minds around it. Now, again, it's ironic because there are many others who could give testimony as well. One of them in... John 7, at the end, is the one who first said, hey, we should at least hear him out. It's a man who came to Jesus by night. Another one's like the woman in John 4. It's like, come meet a man who told me what I was. Because he's changed her, this woman at the well. Jesus has been touching lives, changing lives. There are many who could give testimony, and yet that's not needed. They need to believe Jesus because he is from God the Father, and the Father validates his sending, his testimony. The second argument that they make, though, is not just questioning the legitimacy of his testimony. They question the legitimacy of his divine identity in verses 18 to 59. There is so much here in John 8, 18 to 59, as they question the legitimacy of his divine identity. Because he says, well, I've been sent by my Father. They don't like that. They wrestle with that. And yet... Jesus becomes very pointed because at issue at stake is him being part of the chosen people of God, him being an Israelite, ultimately he being one who has descended from Abraham. So note how strong this exchange gets. I alluded to it a moment ago, but look at verse 41 with me if you would. He's speaking to religious leaders in the temple. Ye do the deeds of your father. They've questioned his father. He says, you're doing the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. In other words, they're taking a swipe at Jesus. Because of the miraculous, supernatural way God fulfilled prophecy. We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil. The lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh his own. Of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. 
Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's word. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Quite the confrontation. It's been boiling over for quite some time. We looked at it last week in chapter 6. We noted at the end of chapter 7 in our scripture reading that it's still going on. Who is this guy? Well, none of us believe this guy is the guy. Let's bring this woman that we might trap him. All of a sudden, they all have to leave. They come back to it the next day. Jesus is teaching the crowds again. And yet they won't believe. They're that blind in their darkness that Jesus indicts them and points out that in reality, they're following the devil. And as he does that, he says, I didn't even know what the devil did in the beginning. He's always been this way. And that begins to catch them. And they raise this question in verse 57. Thou art not yet 50 years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? You're a young guy. How can you talk about Abraham? You weren't there. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. What a statement. Again, Jesus is drawing the parallel. We talked about this our first week with Exodus 3 into Exodus 4. Whereas God, there at the burning bush, calls Moses He reminds him that the self-existent one, the I am, is the one who's going with him, who's sending him. And now Jesus, as the I am, is communicating with people who won't believe on him in the place where they claim to be believing the I am and worshiping the I am. That's not what we would expect. But again, sin is incredibly deceptive. Self-righteousness does happen. Hypocrisy does occur. It would be a shame for any of us to gather at church today to say, I'm here to worship God, to sing His praise, but to walk in darkness. To continue to live life in a selfish way, a sinful way, perhaps a condemned way if we haven't put our faith and salvation on Christ alone in the first place. These people here thought They were worshiping God, and yet Jesus makes it clear that they were not. They're following the father of the devil. And again, I don't know that we could wrap our minds around it, but the text helps us get the picture because Jesus has just associated himself with the self-existent one, with Jehovah. Before Abraham was, I am. So we read these words, Then took they up stones to cast at him. We started the chapter with stones. They all got put down. Now they're picking them back up. Then they took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. In my mind's eye, that's one of those verses where I'm like, man, I'd love to know how that worked. (laughs) Like, is that just a miracle there, or what happened? But in the midst of their anger, Jesus escapes. He's told them the truth. He is the great I am. He is the light of the world. They need to believe and follow, and if they do, it means they will depart from self-reliance, from selfishness, from sin, from self-righteousness, and yet they won't believe. 
So we wrap up John 8 this morning, kind of flying through it. My question for you is, first, have you believed on Jesus for salvation from sin? In essence, have you come to him as the light of the world, the light of life? What does that mean? Well, it means coming to God and saying, God, I know that I disobey you. I know that I'm a sinner. But I believe you did send Jesus as your son to this earth to die on the cross and rise again. God, would you save me? I'm putting my faith on him. It is not coming to him saying, well, God, I'll do a bunch of good stuff for you. That's not what Jesus wants from the religious leaders here. He wants them simply to believe. If you haven't done that, again, I would challenge you, today should be the day where you believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. But on top of that, we should look at this text and see people who thought they were following, but they were walking in darkness. And if we are a believer, say, Lord, would you keep me from that deceived state? God, would you, by your grace, enable me to live in the light? Not to treat you as though, well, I'll come to you when it's convenient, when I need you, but then I enjoy my sin, so I'll go back. That is inconsistent, if not incompatible, with true biblical Christianity. Because those who are his followers do not walk in darkness, Jesus said in John 8, verse 12. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text again and look at who Jesus is, we realize that he is the light who is to expose darkness, to overcome it, to help us see what is right, to guide us in life, to provide hope. Lord, even again, we recognize that where you dwell, there is no night, there is no darkness because you are light. Yet, Lord, we live lives in a world that is certainly marred by darkness. Fortunately, many times, Lord, our lives are marked by living in ways that we should not as well. Lord, if there be one here today who doesn't yet know Christ as Savior, I pray that you would convict of sin. I pray that you would help them to see the hope that they can have by putting faith in Christ for salvation. Lord, I pray that today would be the day they believe and are saved. But Father, we also want to pray for believers here who are perhaps battling with sin or perhaps deceived by self-righteousness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to walk in light, to balance the truth with the grace. Lord, we see just a wonderful display in your son as we read John 8, both with this woman and with his words that follow. Lord, I pray that you would use us to point others to you as the light, as the one who gives life also. Lord, we thank you for our church. We thank you for the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray.